You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right, everybody. I am getting us started this week. And today I'm going to be talking about the... And it's Latin, so good luck, everyone. Oh, boy. Oh, okay. Brace yourself. <laughs> oh, I'm ready. I'm... I'm ready for bloopers. Go ahead. Excellent. Amorphophallus titanium. I heard the word phallus. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Amorphophallus. Amorphophallus titanium. Not not titanium. Not titanium. Okay, that's good. <laughs> titanium. <laughs> I did double check, I promise. All right. So... This flower has the largest unbranched inflorescence in the world. Ooh, nice. Um, yes. What? 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 <laughs> what? Yes. For those so, who don't know what that is, for those, uh, I will. I wrote it down just for this reason. Uh, inflorescence is the cluster of flowers that's arranged on a stem. So it's the really, this particular one, it's a spike inflorescence which means that it's just, it's kind of like a calla lily. It's actually in the calla lily family. Okay. Uh, I think I'm starting to understand where the phallus is coming in. There it is. Uh, So the inflorescence is kind of like the pistil or like the middle part that comes out of the flower. Uh, It has like the, it generally speaking has like the pollen and everything. Um, This inflorescence grows to be 10 feet in height. What? What? (laughs) That is awesome. Or over three meters tall. Yeah, it's 10 feet. You could stack me, stack two of me, and I would just barely be taller than this. Yeah, but that's not saying much. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Hey guys, so, we've well, established that Rachel again, is perfectly average in height. Perfectly average size. But yes. We're going to go with it. All right. So this spike inflorescence, um, and an inflorescence is also called a spadix. So just, I might use those interchangeably. So giving that baseline now. Uh, okay, Mrs. Fancy Pants. I try. Uh, it is wrapped by a spathe. Or also known as, like, it looks like a large petal. So if you look at, like, a lily of any sort, generally speaking, it has, like, the um, stem-like thing that comes out and then a singular petal that surrounds it. Like a calla lily. Like a calla lily or a peace lily or any of the lilies. The spathe itself is deep green on the outside and a deep, dark red on the inside that is ruffled or furrowed in texture so it's really wrinkly pretty much Mm -hmm. wait so (laughs) 
The inside part is large and red and wrinkly. Is that your thought? Uh-huh. The inside of the petal. Yeah. Uh-huh. Of the petal. Did George O'Keefe make any paintings of this flower? I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Um, Only because she didn't know about it. This isn't this isn't going to help. The, so the spike okay. inflorescence or the spadix is, and I'm not joking, this is what it's been described as. Um, okay. It's very similar to a large baguette and it is hollow on the inside. <laughs> okay. That's, okay. Who's like a large baguette? A 10 foot long baguette. Yeah. Right? So yeah. you're like. You see this 10 foot long thing and you're like, you know, it's like a large baguette. <laughs> was it an understatement of the year? Was it maybe uh, first cataloged by a Frenchman? Potentially, potentially. Mm. Um, I didn't That's look a... too much into that part. Uh, oh, man, it just gets worse. So when it's blooming, because it only blooms certain point, certain times, uh, the, the, the tip of the spadix... Is <laughs> is actually about human body temperature, so it's about ninety eight point six. You with the hot plants, Rachel. That's a hot. That's a hot tip. It is. It is a hot tip. <laughs> so uh, once the flower dies back, it the a single green leaf grows from the corm. Uh, if you all remember back to the banana episode, I talked about corms yes, a little bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like a central space for the plant to rise out of. Um, so it rise, it grows out on a green stalk. And this single leaf uh, gets to be about 20 feet tall and 16 feet across. <laughs> what? 16 feet across. Yes. That freaks me out way more than the 20 feet tall thing for some reason. That is. Uh huh. Where? So this single leaf is 16 by 20. Yeah. Where does this yeah. monster grow? Yeah, that's my Gotta be question. the tropics somewhere. Somewhere, somewhere wet. Yeah. It is wet and it is in Shady. the tropics. This plant grows in the openings of a rainforest. In the limestone hills in western Sumatra, Indonesia. Wow. Ah, Sumatra. Yeah. Um, one more thing about the corm is it's actually the largest known corm. Uh, and it weighs on average 110 pounds, with the largest on record being 339 pounds. After oh. seven years of growth. Is the, do you know if it's edible by any chance? I don't think you're going to want to eat this. Oh, we're, we're, getting, we're coming to oh, that. Boy. We're coming to that. Okay. Uh, so before it can bloom into that big, huge flower, uh, it requires about seven to ten years of growth. And it only flowers for about 12 hours. And it can, Whoa. but it can only, it can go up to about 48, but it's rare. Generally speaking, it's only 12 hours. And people, this flower is actually in a lot of um, arboretums and observatories and conservatories sure. around sure. the world. 
uh, partially because of how unique it is, uh, both in size and for its smell. I this, thought this, I that's where you were this going. This flower is known by a common name. Much yes, more it commonly, is. Isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. It's all be- it's all becoming clear what you're talking about now. Yes. Uh, so they have one at the university I went to school. Yes, at. they they would. Um, so the odor that it has is what gives us its name. The corpse flower. <laughs> yes, the corpse flower. It is what... Always a great day on campus uh, when that would bloom. Yep. <laughs> Luckily, it bloomed. I don't know if it's lucky or unlucky. It bloomed, like, after I graduated. <laughs> and I was never sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And when it blooms, it's actually very, like, rare. Like, some of them... Uh, I think the most frequent one is every two years. And it's... It, the way... The way this particular flower blooms I, that I saw, it can be um, designated uh, to, like, the day is where I was going mm. with that. Mm-hmm. So, like, they can time it. Um, sometimes it takes anywhere from seven to ten years to bloom again. Uh but this plant will continue continuously grow and bloom every so often. Um, but yes, the reason why it smells like a dead body, uh, like, a like a corpse, <laughs> is the pollinators that it uses are carrion beetles or flesh flies. Yum. Flesh flies are... Flesh flies. Oh. So I don't like flesh flies. That's also why it's that deep red color on the inside because it looks a lot like flesh. Huh. So, which is what Victoria was hinting at. Exactly. So it's, uh, it attracts them and it's able to, uh, the the little tiny flowers that actually have the pollen and everything are actually in the base, way down on the bottom, mm. and it attracts the. Through this potent smell, it attracts the carrion beetles and flesh flies and allows pollination to happen. And then it goes to another smelly, smelly flower. Because the female flowers actually bloom before the male flowers do. Generally, like, a few huh. days earlier. Um, going into, like, the chemicals uh, of the smell... Includes right. uh, dimethyl trisulfide, so think Limburger cheese, uh, dimethyl disulfide, garlic. So this is all mixed together. Right. Uh, try... So far, it's not too bad. I'm glad you said that. Uh, trimethyl amine, or rotting fish. Ooh, getting worse. Uh, there it is. Oh, getting worse. Boy. I I had a I had a, a jelly belly. Uh, <laughs> I remember I that. that in it one times it was yeah. it was unpleasant to say the least. I after doing that particular challenge, I haven't been able to have jelly beans since. Yeah. Uh, isovaleric acid, which is what causes the smell in in sweaty socks. Oh. And then it also has. Benzyl alcohol, which has a sweet floral scent, 
and then fennel or fennel uh which is like <laughs> chloral chloroseptic uh, which is like licorice, basically. licorice. It's like a, yeah. uh, the relief for like a sore throat and mouth pain. Um, and then the last one is indole, which smells like feces. Oh, sounds like a pretty stinky mix. It's a good recipe yeah. for getting flies to come on to your, your big party, though, which is exactly what it needs. So that's what I've got for you this week. The corpse flower. I feel a little ill. I'm glad it's not not <laughs> literally. You didn't get us. Is it coming in the mail? Or should we be expecting this? Or no, dear God, no. Oh, you just the story. Just the story. You're giving us an actual corpse flower, and I was like, you know, uh, some gifts don't need to be given, Rachel. That's fair. I don't think we have the right conditions to grow it anyway. All right, and then after this, we have Victoria. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. I'm going to start my story off with a man named J. Harlan Bretz. And in 1910, he was a young high school teacher in Seattle. And he was living there and he first started to learn about the strange geology of the Columbia River Plateau. And this is a large region that pretty much straddles the borders of Oregon, Washington State, and Idaho. Cool. This is this is the dry part of of the of Washington and Oregon. So it's basically okay. desert, and these are areas that have a lot of high buttes and large basins, and they're like it's very eroded looking landscape. But it's in a desert area, and one of the things that that started to spark Brett's curiosity was without large amounts of water, how did how did the erosion happen? Great question. That's a, yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah. Well, Mr. Bretz went on to get a PhD in geology at the University of Chicago. So doc. that would probably help to answer the question. Yeah. And Thank he you. eventually, yeah, he eventually returned to this area that had intrigued him in 1922. And he did a lot of field research in the area and he, uh, he came up with a fun name for, for part of this. He called it <clears throat> the channeled scablands. Okay. Yeah, I guess the Scablands oh, is just like it's really dry and and stuff and channeled because it, it looked like there were channels. Scabs? Does it look scabs. like scabs? Uh, maybe if you squint. I don't know. All right. Okay. Language. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Anyway, he he became more and more curious as he did his research because it the more he looked the more it really looked like this landscape had been scoured by absolutely massive floods and hmm. larger than any floods that were known in history outside of the bible and other ancient flood stories but again basically no water around there 
Right. Nevertheless, you know, based on the, the research he had done, he decided this must be what had happened sometime in geologic history. So in 1923, he published a paper with this somewhat shocking conclusion. He got basically no traction. At the time, the fashionable theory in geology was called uniformitarianism, which sounds right. like a religious sect. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, isn't this kind of was. This is before play tectonics became a yes. thing, right? Well, before yeah. plate tectonics became a thing. And so uniformitarianism said that the geology we see is the result only of the kind of slow processes that can currently be observed. And what Bretz was saying sounded a lot like some pre-scientific ideas that ge the geology community was trying to get away from that was based on catastrophe and like biblical floods and stuff. Basically, okay. people see, see how they'd be like, oh, that's really old school. Like we've we're much more enlightened that we've observed change. Yeah. Yeah. I oh. mean, you could see where they were coming from. Yeah. But Bretz was a stubborn guy and he kept advocating for his hypothesis and he kept collecting evidence. And he also um, started to get some key support from another geologist, Joseph T. Party, who provided some evidence for the existence of a a giant lake that could have been the source of the floods. And this debate, nice. yeah, this debate actually raged for 40 years. It was quite contentious in the geological field until the I evidence. I want to know if chairs were thrown. Uh, possibly, <laughs> possibly. I don't know. Really? I wasn't there. Rachel is so excited <laughs> at the idea of like geology meetings turning into the WWE, you know, like someone's taking a folding chair to the back, you know. I, I think mean, it was. I've seen some debate that has happened that has gotten very much like contentious and yeah, well I, i'm not gonna get into it I'll, I'll bet some foul language was at least thrown around i mean geologists are earthy kind of people yeah get it oh my gosh i was just i was just gonna let that one <laughs> just go right on by not acknowledge it at all but thank you victoria well, thanks thank you so much for that <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome at any rate, sometime in the 1960s, uh, people realized the evidence was overwhelming and Bretz was, in fact, right. So what, what had happened in the channeled scablands? What he figured out was this. During the, la the last ice age, the end of the last ice age, about 15,000 years ago, this is just about when the glaciers were starting to retreat, mm -hmm. there was a vast glacial lake that formed in western Montana the Idaho Panhandle, kind of eastern Washington area. We call it Glacial Lake Missoula. And basically, um, a little lobe of the ice sheet to the north dammed off the Clark Fork River, which is a river that exists today. It empties okay. into the Columbia River. And as this lake got deeper and deeper with all the meltwater off of the ice sheet, uh, down near the bottom of the lake, the melting temperature of ice was actually lowered due to the high pressure of all the water. And because of that, water could start to force its way into these microscopic cracks in the ice dam. And the flow of the water created friction and heat and gradually widened the cracks until the dam catastrophically failed, sending hey. the entire condense of the lake rushing across the Columbia River Plateau. Oh. <laughs> Whoa. Yes. Uh, and 
Then the ice dam would reform and the cycle would repeat. And geologists believe that there are... Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was one big event. This is a repeating thing. Yeah, 40 to 50 massive flood events over a 2,000-year period from about 15,000 to 13,000 years ago. Oof. Whoa. That's crazy. That's so many flooding events. Yeah. Well... And, and, and big ones. Yeah, big, just to give you ones. an idea of the scale, the largest... Yeah, what are we talking? Of, yeah, the largest of these floods had a flow that was 10 times the flow of all of the current rivers in the world combined. <gasps> Just let that sink in for a moment. <laughs> it's, it's, hold on, hold on, it's sinking. Are you sure you're not being swept away? It's a lot. I'm gonna, yep, it's a lot. <laughs> a lot. Confirmed. So much. So as you could imagine, this caused some pretty severe erosion. You don't say. Really? Yeah, really. Um, <clears throat> it it roared across the landscape, uh, spreading out, carving canyons. Basically, it's really mind-boggling. We can only guess at how many people and animals were swept away and killed in these floods. And they scoured the land of all vegetation in many places. And they also contained massive icebergs and boulders. There were like rafts of boulders that wound up. Oh, the sediment would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And if like you if think I was of high enough, I'd love to be able to watch it go by. Yeah. That'd be cool I... to see. Wouldn't want to be a part of it. Cool to watch. In its own way, yes. Time machine goals, Rachel. Time machine goals. All right, cool. So if you think of like any river or flood based erosion features or deposition features you've ever seen, like current ripples, the kind of ripples in the sand you see, or carved channels of a river or sandbars, or these kind of potholes. Like, uh, teardrop islands, maybe? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, potholes can be dug out of rock by a, a river flowing. All right. of that happened, except on this gigantic, massive landscape scale. So it's really hard for people to comprehend that this is what they were looking at until Brett started to put all this information together. But you look at some of these aerial pictures you can see and just like the ripples that are the size of giant hills. But if you look at them from far enough away, it looks exactly like sand ripples in a river. It's Oh, I don't like that. (laughs) Oh, wow. I love it. What are you talking about? This is awesome. Okay. Okay. I take it back. It is really awesome. It's just like, I can't comprehend. I cannot comprehend how big that is. Yeah. They look well, like get hills. on the old Google Earth and just start looking. Start comprehending. Absolutely. That's so cool. And since the geologists, geolo- geological field accepted this um, hypothesis, they figured out that similar types of floods have in fact occurred elsewhere and still do occur on a smaller scale. But that kind of glacial, glacial flood can occur just a lot smaller these days. In fact. Uh, there was another glacial lake, Bonneville, which is um, where actually the Great Salt Lake of Utah is the remnant of glacial lake Bonneville. That caused okay. a flood about 14,500 years ago that was more massive than any single one of the Missoula floods. And that actually <laughs> exited through the Snake River and the Columbia River. So it kind of wound up in somewhat the same area. But if you look at a map, uh, the Great Salt Lake is really far away from there. Uh, so that yeah. that was a lot of water to go a long distance. 
And that's one of the largest floods that they, they, they think ever occurred in, in geological history. So it's really amazing to think about the way that land shape has been shaped in the past in ways that our minds have a really hard time even comprehending. Although, of course, uh-huh. it would have been all too real to the people who were living there at the time. Right. Very much so. But oh, my goodness. Super cool. Yeah, that's what I have on that today. Crazy. And when we get back from the break, it'll be Kirk's turn. Yay. Today, I want to talk about mimicry. Ooh. So mimicry, uh, mimicry is all over in nature. Uh, we see stick insects mimicking leaves, which Victoria briefly touched on in a previous episode. Uh, but there's also katydids uh, and even chameleons that will mimic leaves. The giant swallowtail caterpillar even mimics bird poop. Love that which one. Which is really amazing. What? Uh, oh, yeah. The caterpillar looks like a big old bird turd mm-hmm. on a leaf. That's and so, so cool. why would you go as a bird? Why would you go investigate that? That's what you want to stay away from. Right. A mimicry can also involve sound, uh, such as fox and bull snakes rattling their tails like a rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have birds that mimic other birds, like the blue jay that lives in my yard that does a perfect spot-on impression of a red-shouldered hawk. Um, <laughs> Bet we you have, love that. <laughs> oh, it, it's yeah, it's got me a couple of times. Uh, we have moths with spots that mimic eyes. Uh, there's even a bizarre one that I noticed just this year. Uh, the polyphemus moth has spots on their wings that look a bit like eyes. But if you look carefully, they also look exactly like carrion beetles, a species that, Rachel, you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, why that would be, I have no idea. It seems kind of counterproductive if something you know likes to eat carrion beetles. That uh, seems mm-hmm. like a bad idea to have carrion beetles on your wings. Uh, but it's still very cool. Uh, another example of mimicry is the harmless milk snake, which mimics, mimics the banding and colors of the venomous coral snake. Oh, they're so, so fun. When it comes to mimicry, it's important to remember that often it's not a conscious decision, right? So while there are animals that are active mimics, uh, mimicry in nature uh, is um, the result of, you know, usually not choice, but rather millions of years of natural selection. Mm-hmm. So most, but not all, of the examples I said earlier are examples of defensive mimicry. Uh, these are animals who are trying to not be eaten. Uh, now, that is a powerful evolutionary force because if you fail, your genes are likely to be removed from the gene pool permanently uh, via the digestive tract of another animal. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't pass on your genes if you're dead. Right. Uh, now, as a reoccurring theme on this show, nature doesn't like to fit into our neat little boxes. Right. Uh, but I'm going to talk today just about the two main types of defensive mimicry. And I, I will just mention that the lines between them can be blurred. And there are also other types of mimicry in addition to the big two. But I'm just I'm going for the big two here, okay? Okay. First up, we have Batesian mimicry. Uh, this is when a non-dangerous, non-venomous, or perhaps just palatable animal comes over time to resemble a dangerous, venomous, or unpalatable animal. I've also seen this described as the sheep in wolf's clothing uh, type scenario. Excellent. And you can see, yeah, you can see how this would arise easily through natural selection. Uh, there's a, if there is, na- there is natural variation in colors and patterns in animals, and even just looking a little bit like a, a species 
a predator should avoid is going to give you just a very slight advantage. So those that look a little like a dangerous or just a gross tasting species are maybe just a little bit more likely to survive. And those that do not get eaten and taken out of the gene pool and, and don't pass on their genes. Uh, but the ones that don't get eaten, they do pass on their genes. Mm -hmm. And so over time, when you select for the survival of those that most closely resemble the other species, then the population as a whole begins to resemble that other species more and more. The mimicking species benefits from looking like the species it mimics, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So the name Batesian mimicry comes from a professional naturalist, which is fun. Yeah. Uh, it was named, named after Henry Walter Bates, who was an English naturalist who studied butterflies in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, this makes a lot of sense because we see this type of mimicry often in butterflies. Right. Incidentally, uh, Bates was in the Amazon with Alfred Russell Wallace. <gasps> oh. Name ring a bell? Yeah. Uh, Wal Wallace uh, shares the credit with Darwin uh, for coming up with the idea of natural selection. Uh, originally, kind of Darwin got all the credit, and there's been a lot more effort lately to give Wallace uh, his share of the credit because he basically came up with the idea uh, at the same time. Didn't that Darwin he like did. get published like just a little bit earlier? Or well, what right happened after? was he 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 wrote to Darwin and was like, "Hey, I've got this great idea. I just came up with basically this natural selection idea." <laughs> and Dar Darwin <laughs> had been sitting on this for like over a decade. He's like, think, "Oh was like, shoot, I better publish." Yeah. He was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to publish this. I don't know. And all of a sudden, this young guy's like, hey, I came up with this new idea I want to tell you about. And he's like, oh, I'm going to publish. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think technically, um, you know, Darwin did have those ideas first and publish first. But Wallace was uh, more out in the field doing research a bit more uh, at that point. But uh, they definitely were part of the same, you know, group of people. Uh, Bates, uh, in and of himself, is one of the giants of the field. And he was one of the early supporters of the ideas of evolution. Like some of the people kind of all were in the same circle who mm -hmm. knew each other. Bates collected nearly 15,000 butterfly species Oof. in the Amazon, not Whoa. individuals, species. Wow. Uh, so, That's so uh, many he, butterflies. He's a busy guy. Uh, speaking of butterflies, <laughs> one of the classic examples you commonly see cited for this type of mimicry is the monarch butterfly. I knew you were going to go there. Yeah, I was hoping. Many of, many of us learned as kids in school or in a book or on TV that the mon monarch has a mimic. The slightly smaller viceroy butterfly looks remarkably like the monarch. And because the monarch eats milkweed as a caterpillar, the adults taste awful to birds. Uh, by looking like the monarch, the viceroy benefits. There is only one problem with that story. That ain't true. It is, it is incomplete. Uh, one of the pitfalls we can fall into in science is to make assumptions. We know that the monarch is awful tasting. Uh, the assumption was that the viceroys, which look similar, must be mimicking monarchs because they taste fine. Uh, when scientists actually decided to check on this, right. uh, they tried to feed wingless viceroys and wingless monarchs to birds. Uh, they discovered that they both taste awful and are equally unpalatable to birds. So this is not Batesian mimicry. Uh, monarchs and monarchs and viceroys are actually an example of our second major type of mim mimicry, which is Mullerian mimicry. Uh, this form of mimicry is named after another brilliant biologist slash naturalist named Fritz Mueller, 
uh, who is also part of the early adopters and proponents <laughs> of the theory, theory of evolution. Uh, it's easy to see why Mueller and Bates were so keen on the theory as it makes sense. Uh, it, it, it made sense of their, um, their observations of what they were seeing in the field. Now, in Mullerian mimicry, two species that have characteristics that are undesirable to predators eventually is evolved to look like one another. They, sh they end up sharing the same warning patterns. In the case of monarchs and viceroys, it is true that viceroy have evolved to look more like monarchs, but it is also likely true that monarchs have evolved to look more like viceroys. They have likely co-evolved to meet somewhere in the middle. Uh, any bird unlucky enough to taste a viceroy will never want to eat a monarch, and any bird that samples a monarch will be unlikely to want to tuck into a juicy viceroy. Uh, both species benefit by looking as much like the other species as possible. So would this be another example would be bees and wasps both having black and it's yellow It's funny stripes? you should say that. Yes. yes. Uh, I was going to say another fun example is bees, wasps, but also hoverflies. 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 Yeah. So bees and wasps mimic each other and both can sting. Right. So this is an example of Mullerian mimicry, mm -hmm. right? But the hoverflies is an example of Batesian mimicry. Yeah, because okay. they are benefiting from looking like the species that predators want to avoid, uh, but they are not actually, you know, harmful. Hmm. So that's a really cool thing. Uh, you know, because we live in a world ruled by uh, natural selection, it's only natural uh, that we uh -huh. should see lots of lots of mimicry evolving. Uh, and like I hinted at at the beginning, there's other types of mimicry out there too. Uh, but those are the big two that I wanted to share with you today. Thanks, that Kirk. That so cool. No problem. Thank you. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace The Strange.